Welcome back to The Real Voices of the Game. I'm Dave D'Agostino, joined here by our host and star of this show, Jim Rooney. This is Toe the Rubber, episode 476 on our network. It is the second episode of a quadruple header Thursday here. Had Steve Sparks on, former knuckleballer and current color man for the Astros earlier, taking us through the AL West and giving us a few little tips out there, knuckleball tips that I had never heard of, uh, which was great for our young kids out in the audience. Uh, Jim Rooney next, followed up by Mark Wiedemeyer. Uh, we'll be on with Wiley and Will, and then we'll close up with Man on Second with Joe Frazero. So before we get going, bring Jim on. Just want to make our audience, remind them of our supporters, sponsors, Millions. If you go on Millions, our newest marketing partner, two options. Go on Book Me. That'll, that's for advertisers uh, to put proposals in and for businesses, companies, whatever, uh, youth groups to uh, put in proposals for our podcast hosts to come in and speak to their groups live or by video. The shop option lets you purchase our merchandise, which is hoodies, T-shirts, hats, or you can engage our hosts through just a question, a simple, simple question. We call it the experience, and they'll get back to you within 48 hours uh, with an email video to answer your question about their particular expertise in professional baseball. Jawbats, RVG at checkout will get you a discount on us. Uh, great new, new Major League certified maple bats. Uh, love it. My son's using his. Jeff Fry's using his. Absolutely love it. I, I recommend them highly. And then the kinetic arm, we think, could be a device. It's a patented, five patents, actually, that'll help uh, with these rash of arm injuries, uh, not just young kids, but adolescents and adults. And it's not a one-size-fits-all, so you can get fitted for your kinetic arm. Helps offload stress externally, prevents the arm lag. It's a multi-joint dynamic stabilizer, and it aids in deceleration. RVG DAG at checkout, small a, small g at the end, capital RVG, capital D. AGRVG DAG will get you a discount. Thank you to One on One College Pathways for student athletes for handling our production costs. Uh, helps us continue to bring you these shows for free. They've helped over 700 kids in the last four years to the tune of $540 million plus in athletic scholarships. So thank you to them. And then Monet Hair Products, self care. Been using it for about 10 days now. My kids think it looks cool, which is all I care about nowadays at the age of 50. My wife says, I look healthy with the hair, smells good, and it's, it's reducing my hat head. So with that, I know we got a packed show today. Jim, bringing on our star of the show, Jim Rooney. Welcome, Jim. Hello, Dave. How are you doing today? Doing good. Doing good. Got that quadruple header. I'm feeling energized. I'm doing my, my normal protein. Uh, Coach Sal's got me on a little creatine nowadays with my ultra marathon training. So I'm not bulking up, though, by any means, but uh, certainly helps out with the recovery times. Well, I know from uh, past experiences, uh, Coach Sal's a good guy to listen to. Yeah, he's, he's, he's done me right so far. He, but I'll tell you what, I joke with him. I said, and uh, apologize to the audience for doing a bad word, but he and I will exchange Instagrams because I, you know, in his field in social media, it's just, it's just as bad as what we see in pitching and what we see in hitting. So I send him videos that I see. I said, what are your thoughts on this? And every now and then I think I got him. I got, I found a good one. But uh, rarely, maybe one out of maybe one out of a hundred, I'd say he approves of on there. And I joke with him. I said, "You got you just ruin shit for me when I send you stuff." I get all excited. I say, "I got one for him that he's going to be excited about." And uh, rarely is that the case. So I guess that means I got to find a new source other than Instagram. 
Well, as usual, Dave, um, things pop up in our conversation or during the course of the week and uh, brings back stories from my past or different experiences. And uh, I was going to start the show off by uh, giving the audience a little quick story of uh, what transpired at, at my facility the other day. And then, of course, you then tell me about Steve Sparks uh, being a guest earlier. And, uh, and of course, maybe at the end, if we have some time, I'll, I'll tell you my R.A. Dickey story when he was learning his knuckleball. And then you bring up Coach Sal, and uh, there's another story uh, about me and Coach Sal that goes way back. But uh, if I tried to include all the stories on one uh, podcast, I think we'd be here for a couple hours. So I'll uh, get straight to today's uh, topics. Um, a perfect lead-in to the first hot topic I wanted to talk about today is that um, I received a phone call from a mom, right? Very, very nice person. And uh, she was just, she had just grown a little concerned. She has a 10-year-old son. He's been playing travel ball for a number of years, uh, which is par for the course around here in the Charlotte area. And uh, I know he's a travel ball coach. He's a, he's a, Pretty solid hitting coach. And the mom says that uh, uh, the boy's father uh, played at least college baseball, if not more. And uh, he knows his baseball. But um, for some reason or another, she just thought that her son had gotten into a funk. And uh, he was really struggling swinging the bat. So she was wondering if... uh, if I could take a look at them and, and just give my opinion. Of course, everybody else, you know, had their opinions of what he has to do. And uh, so I, I've gone through this situation before with some young guys, and I knew that a majority of what was going on probably wasn't physical. It was more mental. And maybe uh, maybe the young guy had uh, start, you know, slipped down a ladder a couple of rungs as far as having fun playing the game of baseball. So we... We met yesterday, uh, did my evaluation uh, before the rain came down here, and uh, really good kid, very athletic, uh, quick hands. His swing's pretty good. Uh, He needs to make a couple adjustments. We talked about that. And the majority of the time, I just talked to him about, listen, hitting the baseball, this is all about you. This is not about me. This is not what I'm telling you. When push comes to shove, it's not what your dad's telling you. It's not what your coach on your travel team's telling you. It's about you focusing on the task at hand, the baseball, and having fun. And I explained to him all our prior conversations about being in the flow in the athletic zone and how focus and fun create this loop. And now all of a sudden, you're, you're, you're doing what you, you were trained to do. Um. So the mom we talked about, you know, registering for classes, uh, I don't really push it. I basically tell the people, you know, this was a free evaluation and um, you go home, whether it's a ride, ride home in the car or at dinner tonight with your husband. How about the three of you just discuss, you know, what do you want to do? Um, and then just let me know. And we'll, we'll uh, whatever it is, it's fine. It was a pleasure to meet you. You know, have a good night. So I get home. Uh, finishing up uh, after the rain and I get a text from the mom that she's going to, uh, you know, register and the whole thing. And she couldn't believe 
how much fun her son had and, and continually thanking me. And uh, here's exactly what she said. She said, thanks so much for the information today and your time today. Luke really enjoyed meeting and working with you. We we're planning to set up this, blah, blah, blah. I'll set everything up in the morning. Okay. Uh, I just said, listen, it was a pleasure meeting you guys. No rush. I'm glad you had fun. And uh, you know, whatever you, you know, whatever you decide, you know, as far as the package size or whatever you want to do, just let me know. And she said, me too. Everything that transpired today was just what he needed. I can't thank you enough. Now, that leads into our first topic, because we're all guilty of this in one form or another, right? We, we, we attempt to present uh, our knowledge or express our opinion, and we, we get into the, uh, the battle of the big words and the large complex concepts. And like I said, we've all done it. We're talking about kinetic timing, arm drag, upper body acceleration, spin rate, spin axis, staying stacked, neutral rib cage, cylinder cue, peak leg lift, lead foot contact, maximum layback, often referred to as maximum external rotation, ball release, maximum internal rotation, initiating kinetic force development. It's funny, what flashed in my head while I was reading those words is I, I, I thought for a second that I sounded like George Carlin. Um, but what gets lost in the translation of those words, as I've said to many young coaches and parents and ball players, most of the times in learning new motor skills, words get in the way because the words can be interpreted, interpreted three different ways by three different people. And if we just take let's say, throwing a baseball in youth development. For me, it's all about their elbow position and getting their center of gravity past their front hip. Now, there's all kinds of other specifics. We can get into, you know, my, my favorite word, triple spin, and, you know, uh, linear vectors creating rotational forces and two platforms that those rotational forces rotate around. I mean, we all can use these big words. Yeah. I got a, I got a question for you. What, go, what, go ahead. What kind of words, I mean, you, you obviously talked to the kid and the family before, and maybe, maybe you said them already as you were rolling through it, but what kind of things were thrown at him? Because I, I think there's a great message for parents out there that are looking for help with their kids. You got to be aware of the construct of the coach that's instructing your kid, because more often than not, they're throwing their baggage on your kid. Um, something either they didn't do or they couldn't do or something that they just read. And it's rarely researched to be specific about that individual like you're, like you're trying to do, but any, any, uh, interesting words that he came up with or interesting instruction, just, you know, a couple. So parents can, you probably get a lot um, of parents in the audience nodding. Well, be honest with you. I didn't even dive that much into the background of what he was being taught because after I saw his swing, doing some tea work, warming up. I realized immediately this was not a physical thing. It was more of a mental thing. It was my opinion that he's a, a successful young baseball player. He's highly competitive. Started getting into a funk, and then the focus became how to fix it instead of how to have fun. 
And he had learned, I believe, not how to be part of the process and feel what he's doing, but everything was based on his performance and his success. Yep. And once that performance leveled off and the success, he struggled with some failure. Now he was stuck in a negative environment, which of course tears away from your focus and your relaxed execution. You know, my, my favorite term, relaxed execution with unbridled enthusiasm. Um, so it became a downward spiral. Uh, so in essence, I just think by nature, it, it had gotten to a point where wherever, wherever he was receiving instruction from his coach or from his dad, he had viewed that as um, he had to play well. He had to perform, right? And that's where his mindset was instead of being part of the process. That's your message. You've, 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 you've relayed this message in the past where I don't even know if – I think we may have used the book by Carol Dweck as a reference where the uh, – the, the fixed mindset versus the growth mindset is yes. more or less. That's, that's a great message for parents fixed. You can't control You're you're, you're a victim to your environment and uh, the growth total control. And that's a problem. A lot of these kids nowadays, they're not a part of the process. They're coming in, they're being overcoached and undertaught. So I'm, I'm glad you continue to dive into this. And I've can, I've, I've told you before, you're going to, you're going to save the baseball world, at least in your area, one kid at a time. It may take a while, but you're going to do it. Well, it, it reminds me, I, I, last week's show, Pat, Pat Henkin used this, uh, used this uh, phrase. He said, you know, when, I, when I'm working with young pitchers, when I'm talking with them, when I'm traveling around the minor leagues, one of the things that I always keep in mind is that um, you first have to show them you care before you show them what you know. And I think that's a beautiful way to phrase it because – not only the fun aspect of what you're supposed to be doing, which, as we've talked about, increases your focus, which is going to increase your performance, and, you know, without even thinking about it. But there's the lost art of kicking a guy in the butt while you're patting him on the back. It's good to challenge kids. It's good to challenge ball players, even major league ball players. But it's important for them to first understand that you care about them and you have their back. And then the challenge becomes a positive thing, not a negative. It's not something to be achieved. It's something to do. Yep. Um, I use a phrase, Jim. I, I like that one about Karen. I, I've, it's been said to me before and I probably have used it and it's true. Um, I said, I said, and I don't know where I probably stole this from somebody, but I, I was talking to one of my, my younger son the other day and, uh, he was teaching himself through something. He asked for my help. And I told him, I said, you know, I got you. I get you. And I've been you. I've been, you know, been through it. It's nothing. There's nothing fatal here. And I think that's what the kids have to hear. That's what the message to that young man was. It's, it's, it's baseball. Nobody dies. It's fun. Enjoy it. Nothing's fatal. So that's a great message. And all these other guys, I mean, your, your intelligence level in general, let alone in the baseball field is through the roof. And if anybody has the right to use, extra words, big words to show them how smart you are. You do. But all these, these knuckleheads out there, they try to use these words as a, it's a self-importance thing. It's to make them feel smarter than they are. That should be a nice cautionary tale of parents too. Well, this is true, especially when you're, when you're considering who your audience is. Um, you know, it's a, 
was a very simple thing to understand that if, if half your audience spoke English and the other half spoke Spanish, well, obviously you're going to have to figure out a different way to communicate based upon English and Spanish. That's logical. It makes sense. But very rarely do you see a lot of uh, young instructors and coaches and parents, for that matter, understand the fact that um, once I say something to you, once I say something to a, a ball player, it's how that ball player processes that information and adapts it to who they are. It has nothing to do with me anymore. I just, I just provided simple words of guidance and instruction, maybe give a little structure to the thought process, okay? So it, the, the mind is not chaotic all over the place. Maybe I can bring their focus in to a simple thing. Um, for example, hitting and pitching, hitting and throwing, okay? Those are, these are complex um, motor skills, these are complex hitting mechanics, pitching mechanics, right? We always have to remember there's not one way to do things, okay? There's a variety of way to get it done. But as we continue to talk and let's say use the big words, um, even if it's a simple drill on the T, then we're saying, and the person does what he does, and after he does every single swing, the instructor's telling him something new to do. Well, that's not going to get anywhere, right? But if we simplify it and come up with a verbal trigger that works for that individual, and we see that it creates in the swing or the balance or the posture of that hitter or that pitcher, the correct effect. Well, there's no other need for conversation except for that word. So I'll give you an example. I, uh, I was teaching baseball in France for the commissioner's office. Didn't speak a word of French. And I'm trying to figure out how to get some of these young guys uh, to do the T work properly and what the swing mechanic was going to look like. So you can demonstrate the whole thing, but you're still, I'm still looking for a trigger, a trigger that um, brings about the proper feel for each of those players that are doing it, and I don't speak French. So I come across in an English-French uh, dictionary and consider the fact of how many words or phrases are in a dictionary, and just by luck, all right, just, it was just a wild chance. I'm thumbing through this dictionary, and I come across this phrase, claque les non. And I look, and now for our politically correct audience, uh, I apologize for this, but claque les non means smack the midget. Well, the second I said to these young ball players, claque les non, Obviously, they went hysterical laughing that I would even think of saying something like that. But it clicked on each one of them on how to use their front side and how to get their front hand to the baseball. So 
over in the States now when I'm working with some young hitters. Basically, it's step, back, smack. Step relates to the front foot. You know, as the pitcher, you see the pitcher's uh, arm getting into throwing position. Back is the top hand. Okay, goes back an inch or two to set the trigger of the back, but yet keeping it into the, into, in the hitting zone. What a lot of young guys do is if they go back with the bottom hand, then the barrel goes further behind their head. Now, not only does it have a, a further distance to travel to get to the ball, um, and it's something you see when young guys do tee work. They all wind up because the ball's sitting there. They want to crush it, right? Yeah. So they get into that bad habit. But the other thing is that if that barrel tra- travels farther and farther behind the head, young guys aren't strong enough, especially in their core. And if they were going to then smack the front side, that the, the bat's going to go down into hitting zone about three feet behind the tee. Okay, because the body's over-rotated and the bat is behind the head. So I use a phrase called whirly bird. Now it's all upper body rotation. Now, I'm not here to get into arguments with hitting coaches or instructors or anything, whether you want to call it old school or new. That's not my intention. But I do know that because of strength levels of young ballplayers, they're not strong enough to hit like a major leaguer. All right. That's a big uh, issue now, right? I mean, whether we talk about Sal or we, we, we're dealing with Jeff Fry with hitting or, or, uh, or yourself with pitching or, you know, or Jim Colonel, Jim Cott, uh, Wiley or Will, it's, that's, that's the basic issue right now is these trainers are trying to make these young kids that are still growing perform like 25-year-old adults. Right. And when you're working with little league age kids, the yes. most the most important part for me for little league, little league age kids, when they're when they're learning how to hit, and now they're you know going into uh, down here they call it kid pitch, you know, instead of uh, coach pitch or t ball, is they have to set the foundation of how to use their hands correctly in their swing, and then as they mature chronologically physically and muscle maturation and then skeletal maturation. Then we start incorporating the other rotational forces that are then going to make them a complete hitter as they get older. But on the young kids, they have to learn how to get their hands to the baseball. Right. And when they get their hands to the baseball, you can, you can say it's a, the simple shoulder to shoulder swing drill, right? Uh, back shoulder to front shoulder bats in the hitting zone. Okay, we get the ball, we get the bat behind the ball and through the ball, the consistency of contact is going to be greater. And then at that age, of course, everybody wants to talk about power, but where their power comes from is being in the proper position at contact with not only their hands, all right, but their balance and their posture. So I use the old trick of uh, I put the bat in the strike zone, in the hitting zone. And I, most young kids are, are their do, top hand is their dominant hand. So if they're righty throwers, they're righty hitters. Okay, lefty and lefty. And what happens is if that front hand ain't smacking down through the baseball, as Ted Williams had described it, that top hand has a tendency to start to dominate the swing. And then you get the rollover swing. 
So you put the hitter in that position and you walk right through his bat like it's a turnstile. There's no way that he can stop you from walking right through. Or what I do is I, I'm the one with the bat and I let the hitter walk through the turnstile and he walks through it no problem. And then I put my hands in the proper position. Uh, for me, the proper position, front arm, front, um, I'm sorry, top hand, all right? So if you're a lefty hitter, your left hand, it hasn't rolled over or done its work yet. It's still pretty much palm to the sky. And then your the V in your hips, from your hips down to the your feet, and the V in your hands up to your shoulders match up. And then the kid tries to walk through a turnstile, and he realizes he can't move the bat because now you're in your power position. You're in an athletic power position. So by simply using initially step back smack, the kid does his thing, all right? He can go home. He doesn't even need a bat to emulate step back smack, step back, okay? You can even take a soccer ball or a basketball or a physio ball or a kickball and do that exact hitting motion. And what happens is if the front side goes early, it's going to drop the ball. If the backside winds up too much, it's going to drop the ball. And it starts to do two things for them. One, it works on their balance and their posture, which is what, where the power comes at contact for, for young kids. But it also is teaching them that the front hand and the back hand are doing two different things, but they're working together. And not one of those hands is supposed to dominate the swing. They're supposed to work together with rhythm and timing. So by just using two, three simple words, we then see if we have initiated the proper movement pattern based on those words. Now, repeat those for our audience. I'll just give them the three words again. Step, back, smack. <clears throat> now, as you go deeper, <clears throat> yeah, you're going you're gonna to work on swing path, shoulder to shoulder. You're going to do some drills that emulate what that swing's supposed to be like, all right? But also remember, there's a lot of good hitters in the big leagues going back, you know, hundreds of years <clears throat> that had ugly swings. Yeah. But they had great vision and great rhythm and timing. Look at Mel Ott. I mean, that's yeah. uh, <laughs> that was ballpark driven. But for those those guys who don't know, look it up. He had that, uh, what, what would you call it? He bailed out that right yeah. leg. Use that yeah. Short yeah, step in the bucket is the yeah. step know. in the bucket. Yeah. But um, so that's one of the things that <clears throat> I think is, is so important is to understand that um, words are perceived differently by, by each individual. All right. Coaches, instructors, parents, uh, you know, once we get past the initial step, we're here to have fun. You need to adapt your message to the student, to the ball player. Okay. Um, I, I can remember after my senior year of high school that summer, I was getting ready to spend my freshman year at Cornell university and, uh, and my grandmother at the time, my dad's mother, you know, who came over from Ireland, probably, you know, grew up on a farm, probably a fourth, fifth grade education. Right. But yet by the time she was in her seventies, she could finish the New York, uh, New York Times crossword puzzle in an afternoon. So she was a self-educated self uh, individual. 
she said to me, Jimmy Rooney, I got, I, I, I need you to remember something. You're going to go up there and there's going to be a lot of smart people up there. And you might be in one of those lecture halls with 250, 300 people. And that professor might be saying something and you might not understand it. If you don't understand it, that's not, that's not because you're not smart enough. That's because that, that picture's that professor's got to figure out a different way to say it to you. And that has stuck with me. All right. Um, my entire life, as far as being a teacher, an instructor, a coach, coordinator, whatever, is you have to adapt your message to the individual so they can comprehend it and process it and make it theirs. And once they make it theirs, it's all about them. It's not about me. And that's the other difficulty. That's the other difficulty that coaches have nowadays. I got a question, and I don't know if this segues you or not, but uh, you spent time... Uh, we, we had this conversation and we have, we have a guy on today that has this ability. You're, you're a rarity in sports where you were and are a keen evaluator, but you also have an ability to develop players. Um, I mean, that's a nuance that's lacking nowadays because of the segmented uh, place, uh, segmented way baseball is presented. What, uh, I mean, can you, can you dive into that? Cause I, I don't, I don't know if our audience truly understands just how separate those things are nowadays and just how unique and rare you are. Um, I don't, no, I don't, I don't mean to have you pat yourself on the back. I do. No, do. but yeah. um, see what, what it came up was uh, the other day I listened to uh, the podcast that you guys had on two separate occasions with Gordon Blakely. Oh yeah. Yep. Great okay. Stuff. And um, you know, when you, you, um, the topic came up about, you know, not only, uh, some of the scouting stories and, you know, the George Steinbrenner stories and the whole thing, but for a bit on one of them, um, discussed, uh, uh, Weedy, Mark Wiedemeyer and, and the different things he's done. And, and, um, and what it did it, it brought to my attention that, um, people ask, here's the question with the reduction in scouting and player development staffs, would it not be beneficial to have someone that could do both, you know, wear two hats, so to speak. And, um, logic says, well, yeah, I mean, you know, maybe I'll give a numbers example. You know, let's say, uh, I, I don't even know what it is nowadays, but let's just for argument's sake, pick a number that you pay a, uh, you pay a area scout. Um, we'll use that as an example, $40,000 a year. And you pay, and you pay a rookie ball or an a ball coach, uh, $40,000 a year. So now you've in your budget, you're spending $80,000 to fill those two roles. Well, suppose the, the scout as I've done in the past can go see uh, all the top pitchers in the upcoming draft and evaluate them, write reports on them, speak to them, get to know them. And then in their first half season of pro ball, you're their pitching coach laying the foundation and the organization pays you $60,000. Well, the individual that does both, he feels great because he's part of the process and he's getting paid 20 more thousand dollars than if he just was the area scout or just the coach. And yet the organization just saved $20,000. So when you look at those numbers, you kind of say, why does that not happen more often? 
there's two sides of the coin. You can say, well, maybe there's not a lot of people that um, have the ability to do that. I believe there's more than we all give everybody credit for. I think there's plenty of guys that could do both. Absolutely. If, if they wanted to do both. Yeah. But from my experiences, what happens is that you start to you start to have too much influence in the room. Because let's say you're on the scouting side and you've developed a very positive relationship with the minor league pitching coordinator. And now the minor league pitching coordinator is reading all your evaluations and reports because they're going to get them once the, once the guy's drafted and signed. So who does the minor league pitching coordinator then have conversations with? Well, he has conversations with you because within a couple of weeks, you're going to be the pitching coach of all those guys that are, you just signed. Yeah. But now the direct- I heard that I, I really was when he said that there were few people that were either doing both or were, were seen as that those rarities that, that could, cause I was like, boy, don't they, they've got to me, logically, they have to go hand in hand. Well, they, you would hope they did, but a lot of times, well, my point was that the individual that does both then starts getting a lot of influence in the room. Right. Well, the big bosses, they don't want people to have influence. Whether you're talking about old school baseball guys or our new age, um, you know, Ivy League educated, uh, analytically, you know, kind of bent general managers. Um, in a lot of instances, they're still following the uh, military style uh, management. And uh, I'm sure, Dave, you know what exactly what I'm talking about. It's like I had a client uh, when I had the training business in New York City, all right? Highly successful individual. Okay, did great work helping people left and right. His name was Roger McFarland. And uh, he was twice set the uh, under the polar ice cap record of being in a U.S. nuclear sub for over 17 months under the ice cap spying on the Russians. And as he would point out, he had no idea what the guy next to him was doing. He was educated and taught, here's your role. This is what you do. You kind of have blinders on and you focus. And then you're a cog in the wheel. And then when everything comes together, then we have a successful operation on this submarine. Well, for a long time, and it's still in place, that's the management style in, in professional baseball. If we keep everybody on their own island, then there can't be a group that comes together and, and, and questions the authority, you know, questions the message from the top. Um, so we keep the area scouts as the area scouts, the regional supervisors as the regional supervisors, the national guys as the national guys. And that's how our amateur scouting department will work. And we do the same exact thing on the development side. It's ironic since we're, you know, you're, you're in essence trying to build a team where, communication is key and you're almost, almost bottling it in a way. Maybe I'm oversimplifying it, but it, well, it reminds me of this, the assembly line type of mentality yes. back in the industrial revolution where you put the wheel on, you put the gear on, you, 
and nobody knows what the heck anybody else is doing. Yes, and and nobody nobody overstepped their boundaries. And once we decide on a consensus of what we're going to do and what our decisions are, the consensus allows us to create an environment where nobody can get blamed. There's no accountability to who made that decision or okay. Even up to the GM level, oh yeah, he's the one in charge. But uh, listen, we we had a meeting and all eight guys in the meeting agreed this is what we we're going to do. So um, I know how you are, and I know how communicative you are. You you must have tactfully broken down some of those barriers to be as effective as you were, and had some really good working relationships with people that may have been outside your boundaries to have the, to have the success that you had. You had to you had to navigate those waters a little bit. Well, um, you do, and and for a variety of reasons. Um, I, I'll give you an example of a positive experience. And and Gordon Blakely brought this up the other day when he was talking about uh, meetings and draft rooms and different situations with the Seattle Mariners. Uh, it was very similar to my time with the Toronto Blue Jays. There was times that you you'd be yelling back and forth over the table in disagreement. And then you would come to a decision. Afterwards, you'd go to dinner, have a couple of beers and, and laugh about it. Nothing was personal. Everybody was trying to do the best job that they could do as an individual to help the organization. Um, but then you get into other environments that are uh, more politically motivated, uh, you know, these three guys uh, agree with and and just yes, the director of scouting to death because they can get on his good side. Um, some people are surrounded by just like in corporate America, you know, a bunch of yes men. Um, disagreement. Uh, we don't want disagreement. We don't want a difference of opinions. Um, we want to. We want to do. Um, you know, we want to do what's right, but we, we want to stay civilized. Um, and that's all fine. But what it does is, for me, it, it breeds an environment where the people within that organization, the, the communication is them looking for their next best job. They're not necessarily doing. They all have their own individual agendas of how they move ahead in the game. Um, they're not necessarily all moving um, with the thought process that if the organization does well, you know, as the term you use, a collaboration, if the organization does well, then we'll be rewarded. A lot of that has, uh, that's hit or miss nowadays. Yeah. Um, There's a difference between, you know, that people need to understand this. Collaboration and cooperation are two different things. Collaboration is, you, you can, you, you'll have success and that's where everybody's willingly moving in the same direction. Cooperation, geez, a, a bank robber can get uh, hostages to cooperate as long as they got a big enough gun. Yes. So two totally different things there. Yes. Anyway, um, yes. I, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I just want to make sure our audience. No, 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 exactly. And and here's the thing. I mean, you know, you look back, maybe I didn't um, uh, maneuver or navigate that uh, those situations as, as well as you might think. I mean, eventually they because I had too much influence on development and scouting the, uh, the new general manager eliminated my position. So, <laughs> yeah, no but, more of that. you know, 
you know what the telltale sign is, is when they, when you, they do eliminate your position and it becomes four positions. That's when you know you had some, some effect. Yeah. It's, it, you know, what I find in, um, I mean, it didn't work out this way for me, but, uh, there's two ways they go about it in baseball. They, they just say that we're, um, reorganizing the department and they eliminate some positions. So, you know, you're not, you're not fired or, you know, nobody says you're fired or anything like that. They're just, you know, we don't have your position. Okay. Um, and they'll do one of two things. They'll allow you to leave or you can take another position in the organization. And sometimes they might even give you a bigger title and maybe a little bit more money, but you're not part of any decision-making. You're just there, you know? Um, and then what happens is because understand, uh, you know, even, even nowadays when, when a guy comes in, you're, you're rarely going to see in baseball where, a where a new GM comes in and immediately cleans house. That'd be, that'd be a PR nightmare, right? That'd be a PR nightmare. Plus, it's pitting himself up against all the people who were fired, let's say, and then the fans who were like, why are you firing all these people and different things? And now, now the bullseye squarely on that individual's back. Where if over a course of a three to five year period, you just slowly eliminate positions or redistribute. And even if you say, give the guy a bigger title with some more money, um, that competitive spirit of that individual, you think that he's going to sit for the next year, three years on the sidelines? Um, no. So eventually he leaves of his own accord, you know, and this is politically how everything gets done. Um, but to give you an example, because you brought it up. So my years with the Toronto Blue Jays, one, they were, uh, they were extremely special to me. And, uh, because, uh, Working for Tim Wilkin and Chris Buckley, I was a special assignment scout that went around the country and looked at the pitchers. I didn't have a fancy title or anything. I looked at the pitchers, and then I was their pitching coach their first half season of pro ball. Um, that was a tremendous opportunity for me, okay, because I learned both from the scouting side, their scouting department was one of the best. In those days, uh, especially early on, like when Tommy Craig was there with Toronto. I mean, the whole world wanted to work for the Toronto Blue Jays, Pat Gillick and the whole crew, and then later Gordash, um, because they just did things in a first-class way. And the scouting department and the player department, when you had annual meetings and stuff, you, you co-mingled, you talked, you had friends on both sides, you know, and, and it was a ph phenomenal environment of collaboration. Um, then with the Milwaukee Brewers, I started out as their minor league pitching coordinator because of the, the opportunity that I was given in Toronto. If they had just had me as a scout, I would have never had the opportunity to be the pitching coordinator for the Brewers. Um, but the fact that I could evaluate and write reports that were succinct and, uh, and understood and I had some success in evaluating correctly. And then I had some success um, working under Dave Stewart when he ran the minor leagues for the uh, 
for the Blue Jays, and the pitching coordinator was Bruce Walton. And uh, that led me to coach and win a championship in Venezuela uh, for the Cardinales de Lara when uh, Nick Leva was the manager. Um, and here's a Nick Leva story. When, and I think this brings in the, the concept of, va- of evaluation and development as far as coaching is concerned. I would go down um, to winter ball a week before Nick, and I would put all the pitchers through their paces, the young guys, the major league guys, the, you know, everybody, whether it was Venezuela or uh, Dominican Republic. And we'd have a week of throwing and some live BP and different things. And I would evaluate all the pitchers stuff and their deliveries. And then what I saw is what their roles would be on the team. I'd put all the reports together. And then when Nick got there, he'd have the reports and he put the staff together and then as the manager, he'd handle the staff, even though the day-to-day operation, I was the one that checked on, you know, I could evaluate and watch how a pitcher was, you know, doing his throwing program and knew if he needed a day off or not, you know, because of the different biomechanical things and the things that, you know, you could say what came first, the chicken or the egg. Was I able to see or was I given the opportunity to learn how to see because I was put into those environments? Um, So there's the ability to evaluate and then be their coach. And then I was the pitching coach. And then you I hit on a good point. I mean, other than the control factor above that, that type of segmented world prevents growth. And you, you just articulated that, that those two worlds combined for you helped you. Somebody who's at the highest level already, both as an athlete and as a, as a coach and a scout, you got better just by having those two worlds combined. Yes. Yeah. And I, and I think that, uh, you know, there's a lot of people out there that if they were given that opportunity, they'd also get better. You know, it's, it's not just a, I don't really think it's an individual thing. I th- I think that there's a lot of people that would show the uh, the natural talent to do both if they were allowed the opportunity, um, you know. But the other thing that happened was because of that, um, you know, I watched Kelvin Escobar throw a bullpen when uh, I'm down in uh, Venezuela as the pitching coach. Nick Glave is the manager because they're converting Escobar to a closer. So. Uh, uh, Buck Martinez is the uh, manager of the Blue Jays. Uh, Dave Stewart's running the minor leagues. Uh, Mark Connor had come over from the Diamondbacks and brought uh, Gil Patterson over with him. Um, both Mark Connor and Gil Patterson had my younger brother Mike in the Diamondback organization as a pitcher, so we had uh, knowledge of each other. And, um, you know, basically it was that listen, this isn't, we're not sending down there a rookie ball pitching coach. We're, we're sending down there a guy that's going to take care of business. And I had to keep an eye on Escobar. He had come off a little bit of a wrist strain. And uh, because of evaluation and watching, I noticed that um, he threw a split finger because he knew he had to get that, that hand out front in order that split finger to tumble right out of those that release. With total body control, Stuck the landing. The delivery was spotlessly good. But then he would try to overthrow his fastball. So then the coaching side came in. Okay, so how do, how do I deliver this message? How are you going to, you know, in the fewest words possible, okay? Understanding. Kelvin was fluent in English, but it's still a second language, right? Um, 
words get in the way if you're just talking English to English, you know, in the States. So I say to him, Kevin, do me a favor. Um, this is during one bullpen. Can you throw me a split finger fastball with a fastball grip? He looked at me and goes, <laughs> what do you want me to do? You tricked him. I said, you're throwing a split finger, but just hold it like a fastball. Throws it. His next appearance, he's throwing 100, 101 in his, in his, uh, you know, his uh, bullpen appearance as a closer. Mm-hmm. And you, I mean, the part that I hope our audience doesn't miss is you, you got to know this guy. You got to know what, what made him tick, similar to the young man you helped out uh, with, with the hitting who was in a slump. So, yeah, I mean, that, that's a common thread that I hope people don't miss. You got to know him before you offered that suggestion, because without that, you wouldn't have known how to say or what to say. Correct. And, and it's similar with uh, I had uh, left-handed pitcher Mike Porzio. He was in AAA with the White Sox at the at the time during the, during the uh, affiliate season. Nick Labor was the AAA manager for the White Sox, and uh, Mike Porzio he was on the fence. They were getting ready to release him. He hadn't been in the big leagues. Um, they, you know, he was on the release list. And um, Nick Labor said, uh, "Listen, before we release him, let me bring him to winter ball." I got my pitching coach, who's a left-hander. Um, let let this guy work with him, and let's see what happens. You know, I mean, you're just gonna be holding on to him, you know, a couple months longer. I mean, and then next spring training, if we have the same opinion, um, yeah, we'll release him. But let me just, uh, if you will, let me just do this little experiment. So. I show up in in, uh, in uh, Venezuela. I've got Mike Porzio, and I've got a AAA guy from the Mariners. Uh, Farnsworth was his last name, but not the big uh, – this was Jeff Farnsworth of the Mariners, not, not Kyle, the big guy. And um, Jeff's a pretty good right-handed pitcher, right? And uh, But he, it was still the same. It was like – we just can't get this guy, you know, to take that final step. And and he and he knew it, and he was there like, I got to put a good winter ball season together so that, you know, I have a job next year maybe. Um, do you tell them that? Do you, do you let them know, hey, no, you're I on didn't. the fence? No, I didn't. Uh, they, they knew it. They knew yeah. it, all right? And um, they both ends up, end up making the all-star team, you know? Uh, they're calling Farnsworth senior control. He, he, first half of the season, he didn't go to a three ball count. And it changed this whole world around because we worked on getting first pitch strikes, getting outs three pitches or less. I didn't do anything to him. Except even though he had a track record as a successful pitcher in the States, making it all the way up to AAA, He took the leap of faith in himself. And next thing you know, he was with the success. He was the most confident guy in the world. Goes back to the States, later gets rule five by the Tigers, and he's in the big leagues for a few years. Porzio ends up starting the All-Star game in Venezuela, comes back, and pitched three or four years in the big leagues with the White Sox. Um, Now, while that was going on, were there um, 
pitching coaches or pitching coordinators that were pretty pissed off. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, I had a, well, um, a coordinator, a coordinator, a coordinator called me up and, and asked, um, um, because the guy had success. Like, why would somebody be pissed? Yeah. Well, what what'd you do with Farnsworth? I said, to be honest with you, I didn't really, um, I didn't really do much with him. He, he did it himself. Uh, I, I just, uh, I just put his focus in a new place. And this kind of triggered uh, a renewal of his self-confidence and he got on a roll. And then the success just kept coming and he just, he was in the zone. It was like we talk about the flow. He was focused at every task at hand. He was having complete joy at doing it. And uh, I just taught him how to get people out with his stuff. And the coordinator said, listen, I know your name, but I don't really know who you are. I think we were the guys that taught him all that. I don't think it had anything to do with you. I said, well, you know what? I'm just happy for the kid, you know. And now he's a big, and now and now he got rule five by the Tigers, and he's a big leaguer. So um, I'm happy for the kid because it's just like um, it's just like a, a guy that runs showcases, and you walk in, and the banner has all the big leaguers that have gone to that guy's showcase. Right, like he developed them. Yeah. Or you walk into a facility and, you know, let's say Aaron Judge came there to hit. For example, the time that Aaron Judge worked out at Don Bosco Prep, you know, and took some batting practice. Okay. Well, my my brother doesn't walk around saying that he helped teach Aaron Judge how to hit. He just took batting practice there, you know. Yeah. People attach themselves to um, to other people's successes so that they can maybe reap some benefits. So that's yeah. what happens. It happens all over the place. That's our that's our world nowadays. Unfortunately, it's uh, I won't. I, mean, I, had, I had the same things in the in the Dominican Republic. I had um, uh, Rafael Soriano was in AAA with the Mariners, and uh, Fernando Rodney was in AAA with the Tigers. In fact, there was a big Dominican. I forget his name right now. And he was also on the team at Escojito in Santo Domingo. And he was going to be the, the Tigers' next closer. Uh, but he just couldn't put it together. So I, I spent an offseason with, with Rafael Soriano. He was still a starting pitcher. He breaks Juan Marichal's ERA record for a season. In the, in the 55th inning of that winter ball season, he gave up two runs. Those are the only two earned runs he gave up the whole winter. So like like the it's, I forget what that comes out to be like zero point two one or something like that. All right. Um, when I was in Venezuela, when I was in Venezuela, there's a story of Giovanni Carrara. I teach him the split change, uh, so he has something soft besides the uh, hard sinker, cutter, and slider. Uh, he had been using a curveball to do that. It wasn't bad. And next thing you know, he, he sets the save record in Venezuela with an ERA under one and goes on to uh, then uh, pitch three or four 
seasons in the big leagues where he's getting 70, 75 uh, appearances a season. Now, we bring these up, these stories up. It's not all about me. These guys put the work and they did all the work. But sometimes you can just trigger in a person a thought process and give them a little direction. All right. And it changes the whole course of what's going to happen. They did the work. They're the ones that did it. Right. Um, so the last thing, when you, when you discuss the, uh, the evaluations and the coaching aspect of things is, um, you start to see the effect that quality coaching can bring. Um, Giovanni Gallardo was drafted in the second round by the Brewers at a high school. Has a pretty good uh, rookie ball season, half season. I'm the pitching coordinator for the Brewers. And when you first saw Gallardo, it's very similar to the first time I saw Cor- Corbin Burns. Four-pitch stuff, good stuff. They just don't get down the mound enough. Their extension out front. They're losing a little bit as far as in Christmas of their overall execution because um, they're not necessarily getting the center of gravity past the front hip. Um, I'm the coordinator. I work on that with Gallardo. He's, you know, goes on to be the ace. And to a point where uh, the other day, Bill LaJoy's name came up, you know, the legendary general manager and then scout, uh, Hall of Famer. And uh, he, tells a, a buddy of mine who he worked with, he said, uh, listen, tell your boy Rooney that he did one hell of a job with Gallardo. He's getting down the slope. He looks like a different guy. Then uh, for the life of me, I've been trying to find the name. The Brewers hire a pitching coordinator. I'm over on the scouting side by this time. And uh, hired him out of the Yankee organization. He was the pitching coordinator during the Steinbrenner years. Uh, It's funny, Gordon Blakely and the whole crew that you guys have been talking to would probably remember his name. Um, The Guidry years, the Rigetti years, the whole thing. And uh, he was a left-handed high school pitcher out of Virginia. He lives in Alabama currently. He's retired. And I just, for the life of me, I I can't remember his name. We had such a good relationship that it was almost as if I was the um, scouting supervisor in charge of pitching and then was the coordinator because we would talk all the time. And then he was the guy responsible for getting Woodruff and Burns and the whole thing through the minor leagues and becoming, you know, all-stars in the big leagues and Cy Young winners. Um, he did a phenomenal job with them. Uh, and the whole thing with Corbin Burns was, uh, was, you know, how to get down the slope. So, I mean, those stories abound. Um, and then the last thing, the last topic, and and I'll make this one quick, but, um, there were statements and you've heard a lot of people say this, and I bring this up because this concerns development of all in all ages is, Major League Baseball, as we've heard many people say, is starting to use um, the college game as their minor leagues, right? A majority of the drafts are now uh, college players. Uh, In my opinion, a lot of them turn out to be role players. 
and the Latin Americans or the quality high school guys turn out to be the uh, superstars of what we're seeing nowadays. And I know, Dave, you you know this firsthand, but with uh, recruiting and everything, the current transfer portal has turned um, college baseball's recruiting upside down. It's a mess. It's, they've expanded rosters to accommodate for it, but no extra money. And it's it's made it it's made it. Uh, basketball always had a bad rap. Football always has, but baseball's become so impure right now uh, right. in a lot of ways. I mean, you can talk to parents where a lot of these programs they're all based on the transfer portal. It's not necessarily high school recruits. Oh, they're doing the same thing. It's a trickle down. The minor leagues want they don't want high school kids anymore. They want college kids. College kids don't want. High school kids, they want transfers, and right. you know, it's made it's made D2 and low D1. It's basically the minor leagues for right. the upper. And now my, my final point. With all these programs, obviously the emphasis is on winning, especially these big Division One programs in baseball. Right. They make great salaries. They want to keep them. They're not exactly. letting kids call pitches. They're not. <laughs> they're, 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 they're even more motivated to control now than ever before. So if we're not seeing the development in the minor leagues, because we've talked about pitch counts and innings and guys hardly even throwing, guys getting to the big leagues, they've never thrown 100 innings in a season. Um, so there's a lack of development there as far as in the quantity of the development. And we're going to use the colleges as the development system to aid in the development system. But yet these college coaches obviously – with the transfer portal now in full effect and trying to keep the, you know, those nice salaries, the emphasis on winning, where's the development happening? And that's the importance of learning how to develop players on the amateur level, because by the time you get to college, it's not going to happen in this current day, in this current environment. And now, it should never stop. It should never stop at the big right. level of development. Right. Right. So, uh, I know today there was just – it's funny. We have we have guests, and uh, and I love having the guests. And then I realize that we've talked about so many different things um, that it's good sometimes to have, you know, like a review or just to pop up some of the hot topics of what's going on. And I think that's what we accomplished today. Um, but some of the things that have transpired just in the last two weeks, you know, you and I uh, – we could probably speak for three hours. Um, so maybe we'll, uh, we'll delve into some more of this. Uh, yeah. I think the college scene, we could spend a whole show on that. I think we yeah. should probably, we should do that. One of the shows with the, no, it was a great, great episode today. A lot of information. I, I wish I had picked the right song. Words get in the way. There is a song there. I could, I should have picked that for your intro yes. music today. It was uh, certainly a theme of what we talked about, whether it was in French or Spanish or English, you have a way of communicating. Yeah. Um, no, one wonderful show. It's the second show of a quadruple header today, and um, we've got uh, Mark Wiedemeyer waiting in the waiting in the wings to hop on with Wiley and Will, and then Joe Frazero, man on second, will follow up. And of course, I mentioned the knuckleballer Steve Sparks earlier on in our show. But uh, no, it's a great show, Jim. Episode four seventy six, and uh, we'll have some guests on. But I think you you have the abilities to carry a show, so there's no rush. For that, there's certainly a number of topics that we can cover. 
that benefit our audience. Keep doing the good work out there. Your podcast is killing it. And we appreciate what you do. Make sure our audience, all 70,000 subscribers, take care of our sponsors, Millions, Jaw Bats, Kinetic Arm, One-on-One College Pathways, and then Monet. And then we'll tune into Jim next week. Uh, same time, same bat channel. You always are on uh, 10 o'clock, the 10 o'clock spot. So we appreciate you, Jim. Thanks so much with Toe the Rubber. Thank you, Dave. And in closing, for all the people in the audience that might want to plan ahead, uh, I'm extremely happy to announce that uh, the physical therapist from up in the Northeast, Vinny Perez, who we had a great conversation with uh, earlier in the year, he'll be our special guest next week. Perfect. Yeah, we love Vinny. He's been on uh, at least once, I believe, with, with our with our network and is always a, always a treat. So, all right. Thanks again. Great show today. Thank you, Dave. Take care, audience. Thank you.